encourage you now to turn in your Bible. So the book of Matthew is our scripture reading will come from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Here in this particular book, it is written by Jew, Matthew, for Jews in particular as his audience, about a Jew named Christ. That was his focus here in the well-known Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. He writes about being salt and light. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16 reads as such. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As you know, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this week we um, we'll be taking a break from that as we have a guest who will open the Word of God to us. Chaplain Alan Lenz is a new member of our church, as you well know. He is a graduate of the Master's Seminary, mid-90s. Prior to that, he served as a naval officer for a decade. And then he was pastor of Buena Park Bible Church for about... Three years, three and a half years, and then he went back to the chaplaincy and has been serving there for the past 11 years, and currently he is serving in the Coast Guard's 13th District in Seattle. But that is his formal background, but I've known him when I met him in seminary the first year that uh, Pastor Henry and I, we went to seminary together and we met Alan because he was living in the same, same apartment complex as we were. We met him, I think I, my first memory was by uh, the swimming pool. You know, I'd go swimming and Henry would call me crazy because there would be these police helicopters that would show their spotlights all around and be searching for somebody in L.A. And I would be swimming and Alan, though, he was brave enough sometimes to come out for a swim. And oftentimes I would remember he was a very, very studious individual, very serious about the word of God, very diligent in his studies. And he would uh, we would have to read sometimes uh, when we take Old Testament, for example, we would be required to read through the book of the entire Old Testament within that semester three times. And it was always a challenge to him because not only would he just read it, but he would read it and want to understand everything. And so it took take him a long time to do so. And he would come out to the pool and be flustered because he couldn't understand everything that was there. For Henry and I, we would just read. And if we didn't understand it, we skipped it. <laughs> who knows who this Melchizedek was? We'll decide later on, we thought. 
the Lord has blessed us with a reunion. I hadn't talked with him probably for about a decade or probably, no, 14, 15 years until he was, uh, Coast Guard moved him over here. And now he is serving and um, he has uh, been blessed with a ministry, a wonderful family, four children, and a wonderful wife named Brooke, whom we met in his first ministry down at Buena Park Bible Church. So I'd like to encourage you to give him a warm reception here as he comes to open the Word of God. Thank you, Pastor Joe. Good morning. It is a privilege to stand in this pulpit. I need to tell you this morning, I came downstairs. I don't often wear a suit, but I wanted to adorn the word this morning and be appropriate. I came down the stairs and Sydney, our oldest, was in the living room. She said, Daddy, you look great. She said, now all you need is a smile on your face 24-7. And I said, honey, why do I need a smile on my face 24-7? She said, because then you'll be just like Pastor Joe. <laughs> I, I, um, Pastor Joe, I appreciate that memory. And, and as a matter of fact, I still have trouble keeping up with my annual Bible reading because I slow down too much. But... Um, I, I really consider it a privilege to uh, be in Pastor Joe's pulpit this morning because um, I know him as a man of great integrity and he is a, he is a diligent shepherd and a, and a man of holiness. Uh, and so it's always a privilege to stand in a pulpit that is occupied by, uh, by God's man opening the word. I'd like to begin this morning by telling you a story about an incident in the life of Farmer Jed. Farmer Jed had been in an accident. And even though he was a gracious and peace-loving man, the injuries that he sustained in this accident were serious enough that Farmer Jed decided that he had to take the trucking company responsible for the accident to court. In court, the trucking company had a high-powered lawyer, and the lawyer was questioning Farmer Jed. At the scene of the accident, isn't it true that you stated, I'm fine, questioned the attorney. Farmer Jed responded, well, I'll tell you what happened. I had just loaded my favorite mule, Bessie, into the... I didn't ask for details, the lawyer interrupted. Just answer the question. Did you not clearly state at the scene of the accident, I'm fine? Farmer Jed was undeterred by the lawyer's agitation. Well, I had just got Bessie into the trailer, and I was driving down the road. The lawyer interrupted again and said, Judge, would you please instruct the witness to answer the question? I'm trying to establish the fact that at the scene of the accident, he stated to the patrolman, I'm fine. And now two weeks after the accident, he's trying to take the company to court and sue the company. I believe he's a fraud. Well, by this time, the judge was fairly interested in Farmer Jed's story, so he told him to continue. Jed thanked the judge and proceeded. Well, as I was saying, I had just loaded Bessie, my favorite mule, into the trailer and was driving down the highway when this huge semi-truck ran the stop sign and smacked right into my truck. Well, I was thrown into one ditch on one side of the road and Bessie was thrown into the other ditch on the other side. I was hurting real bad, and I didn't want to move. But I could tell that Bessie was in very bad shape because of her moaning and groaning. I knew she was in terrible shape. Just then, this highway patrolman came on the scene. 
He could hear Bessie moaning and groaning, so he went over to her. After he looked at her, he took out his gun and he shot her between the eyes. <laughs> then, he, then the patrolman came over to the other side of the road to me with his gun. <laughs> you know where this is going. With his gun still in his hand. And he said, I'm sorry, your mule was in such bad shape, I had to put her down. How are you feeling? (laughs) Farmer Jed concluded by saying, it was then that I said, I'm fine. (laughs) You know, Farmer Jed reminds us of how many people in our world live their lives. Outwardly, they seem like they have everything together and they say, I'm fine, even when they're deeply hurting. I had a counseling professor uh, some years ago who commented on the fact that most people, when you casually ask them, how are you, they'll say, I'm fine, even when they're hurting. His comment was this. He said, well, I suppose that's true if by fine, what they really mean is frustrated, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted. You know, the reality is that for every person, life gets challenging, doesn't it? We endure trials and difficulties, disappointments and confusion, and sadness at times confront all of us. This has been true ever since the fall of man. From the moment that Adam and Eve declared their independence from God and said, we do not need to be under God's authority, sin entered the creation and life has been difficult. But obviously there's good news. Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity into time and he brought salvation. He paid the price, he paid the penalty for sin on the cross and he offers salvation to each and every person who will turn from their own sin in genuine repentance, recognizing their rebellion from God and embrace his finished work on the cross as final payment for sin and trust in him alone and that finished work for their eternal destiny. There's more good news. Eternal life isn't something that just begins in the future. It begins right now. The moment a person comes to Christ and that burden of sin is removed, that eternal life begins. That's a quality of life. And the Scriptures promise us that one day Jesus Christ is going to return. He is going to remove all of the effects of the fall. He is going to remove all the effects of sin. That's for later, right? We don't know how much later. It might be five minutes from now. It might be some other time in the future. But there's, there's more than that. There's something that applies right now. And that is this. When a person calls a man or woman to Jesus Christ, or a, a young person, doesn't matter, gives that person a specific task and a goal, a vital role to play in this world. What is this vital God-given purpose? Well, I want to direct you back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Pastor Joe read that for us and set the context. If we were to give the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a theme, we would call it uh, the kingdom of the king. Jesus came and presented himself as the king of Israel. As the king of kings. Every king must have a kingdom. So Jesus preaches this sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, by the way, to explain the nature of his kingdom. Now, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, occurs in a larger context that begins back in chapter 1, where Jesus is describing the citizens of his kingdom. 
If he says, you want to be able to recognize a member of my kingdom, here's what they are like. And he goes through the Beatitudes. And then in our text, he is specifically focusing on the relationship that the citizens of his kingdom are to have with the unbelieving world around them. Does that make sense? And here in this text, I want to show you three vital functions which you as a Christian perform in this world. Let me give you all three of these functions up front so you'll know where we're headed. I think you have these in your your bulletin. Number one, you preserve the world from moral decay. That's in verse 13. Number two, you provide the world with genuine truth. That's verses 14 and 15. And then finally in verse 16, you prompt the world to worship. So, let's begin to look at these three vital purposes that each and every believer in Jesus Christ has in this world. First of all, you preserve the world from moral decay. Look at verse 13 with me, if you would. Jesus starts out by saying, you are the salt of the earth. Now, to understand what he's saying here, we need to understand that in Jesus' day, salt had a very different purpose than it does in our day. We use salt as a, as a spice, and some people like it, some people don't. You can take it or leave it. It really doesn't matter. In Jesus' day, salt served a very, very different, in fact, a vital purpose. Salt was a preservation A preservative, salt would be rubbed into meat to to kill the bacteria and slow the process of decay. Now what's Jesus saying by, by turning to his disciples and saying, you are the salt of the earth? He's making a very important, a significant statement about the nature of the world around us, isn't he? He is saying, you live in a world that tends naturally to moral decay. Now, that's easy to illustrate. I want to take just a minute and and just kind of run through some Old Testament passages for you. We're not going to look at them for the sake of time. But I want you just to follow with me as as we look at this process of moral decay. We have the creation. God creates the world in six literal days. On the seventh day, He rests to give us a pattern, an example. And in Genesis 1.31, it says that God looked at everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. That was God's benediction on his own work. Now, when a holy God looks at something and says it's very good, what does that mean? That means that it is perfect. So God made the world in perfection. But of course, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And the the sin came into the world at that point. It changed their nature. And they, by the way, passed that nature on from generation to generation to generation. But Adam and Eve fell. That was the entrance of of sin into the world. But you know what? Sin is not stagnant, is it? It it progresses like a cancer. You go to Genesis chapter 4 and what do we have? We have the first murder. As Cain rises up against his brother out of envy and hate and kills him. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord says this about mankind. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. You see that? That's what we call complete and total depravity. How do we get from, behold, it is very good, to Genesis 6, 5? That's that progression of sin. God starts over with the flood. 
and Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God saves Noah and his family. He starts over again. And right after the flood, the men begin to populate on the earth. And we have the same thing all over again. Genesis 11, rebellion at the Tower of Babel. Genesis 18 and 19, we have Sodom and Gomorrah. And the sin of of those people had become so great that God said, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. We know there's an interesting thing that happens in there. If you go back to Genesis 18, don't turn there, but just make a note. Around verse 16 or so, God appears to Abraham. A a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, the the angel of the Lord comes, and, and Abraham bargains for the life of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. He starts out by saying, Lord, if you find 50 righteous men, you're not going to destroy the whole city, are you? I mean, far be it from the judge of all the earth to judge unrighteously. And and Abraham knew something about the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. He, He bargains with God and gets them all the way down to 10 people. But he says, God says, if I find 10 righteous men in that city of sinners, I will spare the whole city. You see that? You see that preserving influence? Well, the same is true today, isn't it? We could look at modern society at the, at the end of the 19th century. There were glowing predictions of the future and with technological advances and advances in communication, advances in medical science, uh, social thinkers heralded the, the end of all disease, the end of war. Uh, and they said, you know, we're just going to usher in a wonderful utopia and, and all suffering and disease will be done away with. Has that happened? Hasn't happened, has it? The world tends to moral decay. It's unstoppable. But believers, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he says, you are a force that slows down this process of moral decay. Look back at the verse. He says, you, and that's emphatic, and that's important. He says, you and you alone. As my followers, as ones who bear the gospel truth, who live for Jesus Christ, who have, as Paul said, this this immeasurable treasure, this precious treasure in earthen vessels, as you live your lives, the influence that you exert on the world around you is such that you preserve the world from that downward spiral. Is that significant? You bet it is. Now, why does Jesus say, you and you alone? Because man, ever since the fall, has constantly tried to solve his problems without God. Right? But you know what? The problems are not going to be solved by, let's, let's just get everybody educated. We've got to get more education. Education isn't going to solve the problem. Technological advancement is not going to solve the problem. Having the right political leaders in office is not going to solve the problem. Self-generated efforts at getting along, let's all get along with each other and let's just be nice people, that's not going to solve the problem either. Now, don't misunderstand me. These are not wrong in and of themselves, okay? There's, there's limited value in all of those, but the point is, none of these things is going to bring true hope and blessing and peace to the world. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Only the truth that you have, only the truth that you are in Christ is going to do that. That's why believers, that's why you have a vital function in this decaying world. 
In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter was preaching to the Jewish leaders shortly after Pentecost. And he said this, he said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus says to his disciples, You and you alone are the salt of the earth. And of course, by implication, all of Jesus' followers, because they were, they were the salt of the earth because they followed Christ. Now look back at verse 13 again. He says, he says, you are the salt of the earth, and he's talking about a continuous reality and a relationship that we have with the world. But you'll notice there in verse 13, there is also a caution, isn't there? Look back at the verse. He says, but if salt has become tasteless, how shall it be made salty again? There's a caution there, isn't it? He says there's something about salt that you have to be aware of. What's the natural condition of salt? It's salty. But salt can lose its, its saltiness by being contaminated or, or, or by, by being exposed to the elements or contaminated with impurities. Jesus says if salt has become tasteless, literally, if salt should lose its saltiness. And I think what he's warning us against, beloved, is he's saying, as you are in the world, you need to be careful that you don't become too much like the world. He's saying that you need to be careful that you don't become contaminated and you don't blend into the world so much that you lose that ability to be that preservative. Now the Lord says if that happens, the salt is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men at the end of verse 13. You know, that's interesting because that's exactly what they would do with salt that had gotten kind of contaminated. They would, they would take it and they would spread it on a footpath. Because salt that couldn't be used as a preservative anymore could still kill some vegetation. So they would put it on the path so that it would kind of keep the vegetation back. And that's a valid use for salt, by the way. But, but compare the two uses. On the one hand, there's a vital, life-saving use as a preservative. On the other hand, it's just, you know, people just walk on it and they don't even pay any attention to it. Now, we're not talking about loss of salvation, right? But we're talking about um, effectiveness in fulfilling your God-given purpose. So, Jesus says if salt can lose its saltiness, how, how can this happen? Well, I'm not going to get into a whole lot of specifics, but just, just generally, uh, as I said, we become too much like the world around us. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He says, as you are in the world, you need to continue to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. And then verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. 
So I think this is a positive exhortation to perseverance and diligence as we walk with the Lord, isn't it? It is, am I making daily Bible reading and prayer a high priority in my life? That's the communion that we have with the Lord. Am I making study? Am I making fellowship? Gathering together, as Pastor Joe was talking about earlier, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. All of these are ways that we continue to maintain our our saltiness, if you will. When you fall into sin, don't let that cause you to drift away from the Lord. Right? When, when, when we find ourselves falling into sin, what do we need to do? We need to run to the only one who can fix it and confess it and forsake it and trust the Lord for his forgiveness. We get up and, and, and keep going. Right? The righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again. Right? This is how we walk in the world. So not only do you preserve the world from moral decay, there's a second vital purpose you have. We find that in verses 14 and 15. You provide the world with genuine truth. And this is so very vital. The construction in verse 14 is the very same as verse 13. He says you, and it's emphatic, you and you alone. And he says, with respect to the world, in your relationship to unbelievers, he says you and you alone are continuously the light of the world. Now, it's very, very interesting what Jesus is saying here. Light has a number of symbolic uses in Scripture. Light symbolizes purity as opposed to filth. It it symbolizes righteousness as opposed to sin. Good as opposed to evil. It symbolizes knowledge as opposed to ignorance. And and a growing intimacy with God as opposed to reprobation and, and, and moving away from God. We can gather all of those things up, I think, very accurately by saying that light symbolizes truth as opposed to error. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And in doing that, he says something very, very interesting. Because Jesus himself is the light of the world, isn't he? Listen to John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then in John 12, 35, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and referring to himself. He says, a little while longer, the light is with you. But here in Matthew 5.14, and I love this, he says, you are the light of the world. What's he saying? The light that we shine is a derived light, right? It's not, it doesn't come from us. It comes from him. We are, we are channels of that light, if you will. Remember, like Moses, when he went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, he was up there. And when he came down... His face, you remember his face? It shone with the Shekinah glory of God. Moses had been in the very presence of God and that blazing glory. We don't really know what it was like up there. But Moses came down and his face radiated the glory of God. Because he had been in God's presence. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. You know, just as the, a full moon shining brightly, that light doesn't come from the moon. It's reflected by the sun. Jesus is saying, 
The light that we shine is a derived light. You know, I was going to bring a light bulb and I forgot. And I was going to hold it up here and say, I'm going to light this light bulb. Ready? And then I was going to do this and it's not going to light. And I was going to ask you why. Because it's not connected to the power source. And in the very same way, if we're going to be effective at shining the light, being that that source of truth to the world, we need to stay connected to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus kind of illustrates... The point here in verse 14, he says, look at the text, if you would. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, in Jesus' day, in the ancient Near East, many, many uh, homes were built, or cities, I'm sorry, were were built up on hills. Jerusalem was, and, and homes were typically made out of white limestone, and they were visible for miles around. And Jesus says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The point is obvious, right? They didn't have road signs in those days. And so if you were traveling from place to place, you could kind of see it from a distance. You could get there. The people knew exactly what he was talking about. He, he gives us another illustration from everyday life. He says in verse 15, Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. This is based on typical daily life in a village in the ancient uh, Near East. And in fact, many places in the Near East are the same today. There was, a, there was a single room and in that the middle of that room was a lamp. And that lamp was, was put up on a stand and it was to light the whole area. When I was in Iraq a few years ago, I saw homes just like this. And, and there was a lot of effort that went into keeping this lamp lighted. It had to be lighted all night long. Often someone would have to get up at night and trim the, trim the lamp and make sure everything was okay so that when people got up in the morning, they could see what was going on. So Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. He's talking about a big uh, clay uh, pottery bowl that would be used for carrying grain. He says, no one would do that. And I thought, you know, the, the modern day example would be, you know, take a floor lamp in a room and turn it on and put it in the closet and go, gee, why is the room so dark? You know, nobody would do that. Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. What's Jesus talking about? He's warning us against another error. He talked about, hey, don't become so much like the world that you lose your flavor. What's he talking about now? In order for light to serve its function, it has to be seen, right? In order to obscure the light, you have to make a direct effort. He's saying, don't withdraw from the world so that they don't see your light. You see, he's warning us about two opposite errors, isn't he? He's saying you need to be in the world as it is. You need to let your light shine before men. Literally, in the presence of men. He says here in verse 16, let your light shine before men. And he says... There's a specific reason why you should do this. Let your light shine before men, or I'm sorry, there's a way in which you should shine the light, in such a way that what? They may see your good works. They may see your good works. Let's pause there for a minute. That see has to do with physical sight, but it's more than that. It is also mental perception. 
What Jesus is saying is the people around you should be able to look at your life and understand something about what they see. They, what are they to understand? That the good works you do don't come from you. They come from God, right? In order for that to happen, you need to be in the world. 1 Peter 2.11, let me give you the background of 1 Peter here real quickly. 1 Peter was written to believers who were suffering persecution or about to suffer persecution. And he was concerned, it would be very natural to withdraw a little bit from the world for fear of of the persecution. And Peter wants to exhort them to say, "Don't, don't do that. 1 Peter 2.11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul, keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Among is an interesting word. It basically means up close and personal. Right? And that's a challenge for us as believers sometimes, isn't it? We get real busy in the kingdom, and we should be, but we need to have, we need to have relationships with unbelievers that are focused on Christ and focused on His, His truth so we can be that salt and light. You know, that's, that's one thing that I really like, I appreciate about being a chaplain. I am around unbelievers all the time, and I can't withdraw from them if I want to. But it's a constant reminder that, you know, I'm here to be salt and light and to bring the presence of Christ into this situation. So, let me ask you a question. How are you doing in terms of shining that light? How are you doing in relationships with people and giving God the glory in the midst of that? I I think of David, King David, who said, I have become a marvel to many because I fear your name. People watched David and they looked at what he did and David, David walked so closely with the Lord and he gave glory to the Lord. People looked at what happened in David's life and said, he can't do that. That has to be his God. Jesus says here, shine your light in such a way that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the purpose of those good works, isn't it? If we are walking with the Lord and we are shining our light, we're being that preservative, if we are doing the things that God has called us to do, we will indeed be a source of glory to the Lord. And that brings us to our third point. Not only do you preserve the world from moral decay, not only do you provide the world with genuine truth, you prompt the world to worship. How are people going to glorify the Lord when they see our good works? Well, one of two ways. Obviously, if you are walking with the Lord and you have a witness, that a verbal witness to the truth of God that is backed up with a life like this, it's going to be a powerful witness, isn't it? And the Lord is going to use that to draw His elect to Himself. People are going to come to Christ and glorify the Lord. But you know, not everyone is going to do that. Some people are going to look at your witness and they're going to run the other way. But ultimately, they will glorify the Lord, won't they? 
There's always been that, that dual response to the, to the truth of God and the power of the gospel. In fact, I, I think of what Paul said in 2 in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, he said, Thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death and to another an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? I won't go into the, 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 the history of this, but you got two very different responses, right? you got the whole mass of the unbelieving world watching the very same thing. And for some people, it's an aroma of life. To others, it's an aroma of death. We can't control that, can we? Ours is to obey and ours is to walk with the Lord and and maintain that communion and the fellowship and and serve that vital purpose. And I want to encourage you because oftentimes in a dark world, it's easy to get discouraged and it's easy to think, oh, you know, I, I just don't have very much of a purpose here. But these are three vital purposes that you have. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, you've turned to Him by faith, you have these vital purposes in your life. The great English preacher and commentator Donald Gray Barnhouse illustrates for us, I think, how very subtle influence can be, the power of influence. He says, some years ago, musicians noted that errand boys in a certain part of London all whistled out of tune as they went about their daily work. It was talked about among the men and some suggested that it was because the bells of Westminster Cathedral were slightly out of tune. Something had happened to the bells, and they were a little bit discordant. Well, the the, the boys quite subconsciously copied the tunes, like our kids copy songs from TV, right? Uh, Copied the tunes, and they were whistling out of tune. Don Gray Barnhouse says, So we tend, in the very same way, to copy the people with whom we associate. We borrow thoughts, we borrow... uh, Ideas from the books we read and the programs we listen to, and I would add, and watch, almost without knowing it. He says, God has given us His Word, which is the absolute pitch of life and living. If we learn to sing by it, we shall easily detect the faults in all the music of the world. Let's strive by God's grace to be in the world, but not be of the world, to shine that light and to be that preservative and, and, and draw encouragement from that exalted purpose that the Lord has given you in whatever circle you happen to be in. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the reminder that You've given us about uh, the, the very significant role that You have for each of us in this world as members of Your Kingdom. Lord, please encourage every heart. Please strengthen us that we might be effective and fulfill this, not in our strength, but in yours, for your glory, that your purposes might be accomplished. Amen.